Good morning. I'm Michael Nassani, and I'd like to do this reading. Um, first off, I'd like to invite you all after the service uh, to, to stay and take a chance to uh, take the opportunity to take a look at the, uh, the art wall uh, that we've created that will be up for the next several weeks. Um, and the theme for it is uh, working together to achieve justice through the Underground Railroad in southwest Michigan. And this is a project that uh, I worked on with Ken Sarkozy, uh, the co-creator, and a whole series of students uh, and others that are too numerous to name. The Western Michigan University Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Kalamazoo Valley Public Museum provided the support for this exhibit. And let me tell you what, what are some of the, uh, the ideas that it, uh, it stimulates for me. Racism in the United States has its roots in our horrific history of slavery. Research on the Underground Railroad shows how people resisted this institution through escape and reveals the role that whites and people of color played in challenging slavery, often at great personal and economic risk. This exhibit provides vivid historical examples of ways in which people of all racial backgrounds can bond together to seek justice and effect change. The exhibit was inspired by historical and archeological investigations conducted in Cass County, Michigan, in search of material evidence of the community known as Ramptown. Known only through oral histories, Ramptown refers to the people of African ancestry who defied their enslavers, escaped captivity in the American South, and settled with Quakers and free blacks in the agricultural fields surrounding Vandalia. Artifacts, documents, and local stories are presented to demonstrate that people worked across the color line to challenge the racialized hierarchy and laws that denied basic human rights to large segments of the population. Despite the success of the Underground Railroad, people involved were unable to eradicate racial oppression. This oppression continues to this day in subtle ways that we all perpetuate unconsciously. Its persistence diminishes our humanity. The work being conducted by the People's Church Anti-Racism, Anti-Oppression, Multicultural Committee, Aramac, aims to expose our contributions to a racialized society and the roles we play, we can play in transforming it and how we can gain inspiration from those who came before us. So let me take a moment to comment on that point about our contributions to a racialized society. I'd like to highlight the difference between being non-racist and anti-racist. The vast majority of everyone I've ever met here at People's Church are non-racist, which means that we don't hold conscious biases against those who are racially different. We believe in equality and in, in equality and justice. We don't intentionally act in ways to harm or discriminate. In contrast to that, an anti-racist is a person or organization who consistently and with intention 
act in ways to root out and change systemic policies, practices, laws, and habits that knowingly or unknowingly support the continuation of a racialized and racist society. An anti-racist stance includes an examination of one's own personal dynamics and the dynamics of their own home organization. So the purpose of an Aramac committee in any UU congregation is to help that congregation examine and adjust their internal systemic policies, practices, and habits that unknowingly and unintentionally keep the framework of racism alive in our society. So this exhibit is meant to motivate contemporary anti-racists, including all of us here at Peoples who are already non-racist, who challenge inequities wherever they may appear in an effort to create a more diverse and inclusive society. It aims to demonstrate how small acts of kindness grew to become defiant strategies when practiced collectively. The lessons of our predecessors remind us that we have much to learn from the past as we continue to struggle to liberate ourselves and to create a society in which we all can be judged by the content of our character. Thank you. I'm Nadine Godinsaney, and I'm going to do a reading today by Denise Levertoff, uh, entitled Beginners. But we have only begun to love the earth. We have only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How could we tire of hope? So much is in bud. How can desire fail? We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy, only begun to envision how it might be to live as siblings with beast and flower, not as oppressors. Surely our river cannot already be hastening into the sea of non-being. Surely it cannot drag in the silt all that is innocent. Not yet, not yet. There is too much broken that must be mended. Too much hurt we have done to each other that cannot yet be forgiven. We have only begun to know the power that is in us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. So much is unfolding that must complete its gesture. So much is in bud. And now I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Lily Wolf has been actively involved with a race. A race is eliminating racism and claiming celebrating equality since 2011 and began serving as co-director in 2014. She is currently apprenticing to become a core trainer with a race's national partner organization, Crossroads Anti-Racism Organizing and Training. Lily is bilingual in English and Spanish, and prior to working for a race, spent seven years organizing around farm worker and immigrant rights. She is passionate about the intersections of social justice 
in ecological justice and has served on the board of directors of the Institute for Sustainable Living, Art, and Natural Design. Lily earned a BA in Human Development and Social Relations from Kalamazoo College in 2004. And now, Lily Wolf. Good morning. morning. It's an honor to be with you all this morning. Um, Thank you to the uh, Aramaic Aromic (laughs) Committee. Um, I can never say it right. Um, Thank you for inviting me to share some reflections with you this morning. Um, As Nadine mentioned, um, I'm the co-executive director of ERACE, Eliminating Racism and Claiming and Celebrating Equality. Um, So race and racism are not easy topics, and um, most of us have had one or more conversations that didn't go so well. So I want to invite you, before I begin, to just kind of um, give yourself permission to just sit with whatever arises. Um, It's not our fault that we don't necessarily know how to talk about race in our culture. Um, We're not taught how to do that. Um, We're not taught that Um, Race itself is a social construct with roots dating back to over 500 years to the arrival of the Europeans, the systematic oppression and destruction of Native American communities, and the subsequent founding of the United States. So I want to invite you to listen to my words from a place of awareness and just notice what arises in your body, heart, and mind. You don't have to judge or analyze your thoughts or feelings, just see if you can uh, observe observe them and, and kind of breathe into what's there. That's helped me in my experience. Um, So I don't remember when or how it was that I learned I was white. That alone says a lot about race in the US. I, like many of you, was socialized to think of myself as normal, especially as someone who fits into other mainstream norms, such as being able-bodied, standard English speaking, and middle class. Whiteness has been like air. It just is. As a white person, the world is set up for me to thrive. This doesn't mean that I don't experience discrimination based on my particular appearance, my gender, or religious background. But it does mean that my race doesn't negatively compound upon these other aspects of my identity. That I don't remember when or how I learned I was white doesn't mean I don't have experience with race. I was born in New York City to two progressive creative types. I was exposed to many different walks of life during the first five years of my life in New York. And then we moved to Traverse City, (laughs) one of the whitest places I know. And I've spent 17 years in Traverse City, and this place has definitely influenced my relationship to race, though I didn't realize it until I moved away. I came to Kalamazoo to attend Kalamazoo College from 2000 to 2004, and while I could feel the racial tension that exists in Kalamazoo, um, I was, like most students, sheltered by the K-bubble. And unlike the increasingly diverse student body there today, there were only five African-American students and 10 Asian-American students in my class of almost 300. No Latino, no Arab American, and no Native American students. At K, I was drawn to sociology classes like the Building Blocks Community Organizing Practicum, where the goal was to bring residents of Kalamazoo together to collaborate on neighborhood beautification projects. 
I studied abroad in Ecuador for 10 months where I completed my intercultural internship with a program called Learning Through the Arts in which local artists teach low-income elementary students about math and science through art projects. K College gave me a good education. It helped me develop valuable critical thinking skills and a desire to build community and become a social justice leader. Kay trained me to become a critical lover of society and of all institutions, which is why today I can confidently say that I am a critical lover of Kalamazoo College. <laughs> that said, Kalamazoo also taught me, directly and indirectly, that as a well-educated white leader in the world, I needed to help fix and save those who have been less fortunate than me. So, after I graduated, I moved to Washington, D.C. for a year of volunteer service. I was placed at a nonprofit called Bread for the City as their legal clinic coordinator. As many, uh, among other things, I was tasked with writing social security denial appeals for a caseload of all African American residents who were suffering from illnesses and traumas I had never even imagined. <clears throat> I combed through their medical records every day, working diligently to craft the most compelling story I could to help them get the benefits they so desperately needed. After a year of this intense work, I became depressed and, and burned out as a 22-year-old who was clearly a little bit overwhelmed by the real world. So I moved back home. Once back on my feet, I took a position uh, administering financial assistance for migrants and seasonal farm workers at a local human services agency. There I was, once again, in a gatekeeper position, this time handing out money to some of our, um, our state's poorest and most marginalized people. Eventually, in collaboration with other service providers and advocates in the area, I started an English as a Second Language program for immigrant adults. By the end of three years doing this work, I was once again exhausted, and I felt the need to step away from the nonprofit world in order to learn how to better take care of myself. So, like many soul-searching white Americans, I went to India. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, um, this was an expensive trip to learn that key, the key to self-awareness, uh, self-knowledge, and balance didn't necessarily exist 8,000 miles across the ocean. It was a long way to go to realize that my guru dwelled within. So after returning home and doing um, spiritual and artistic work for a while, I started to feel disconnected from reality. I was engaged in my community in Traverse City, helping people through my yoga classes and creative projects, but I was surrounded by people just like me. I wasn't in any kind of authentic relationship with oppressed communities or communities resisting oppression. And that's when I decided to move back to Kalamazoo. And I looked for a job in the nonprofit sector to, to reconnect to something meaningful. And a year after I arrived, um, I was hired by the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center, or called Merck. And I was their, their advocacy coordinator, uh, and I eventually took over this program called Welcoming Michigan. This is where my identity as a social change agent began to shift. I began to see myself as an ally instead of a helper-fixer-saver. I was tasked with organizing other U.S.-born non-immigrant people in order to build welcoming communities. It was the first time I was organizing people like myself. What a concept. <laughs> this felt different than my prior work providing services to people in need. I was learning how to be in solidarity 
with immigrants and accountable to them by educating other non-immigrants like myself about the important contributions that immigrants make to our communities. In 2011, during my first year with Merck, I took the ERACE two and a half day workshop called Understanding and Analyzing Systemic Racism and it changed my life. I went into it with a good amount of analysis about our country's social ills. I had been raised by progressive parents, gone to a liberal arts school where I studied abroad and took courses like Psychology of Prejudice and Women in Religion. I had been working on social and ecological justice projects on and off for six years. Even still, this two and a half day workshop was transformative. I began to see how my approach to social justice work had been based on me having everything to offer and those I was helping having some sort of deficit that I needed to fill. It was paternalistic, though had someone told me that at the time, I would have been defensive if for no other reason than because I was just following orders as a good, social, as, as a good liberal, well-intentioned white person. What was wrong with that? After I took the ERASE training and began regularly attending the ERASE Monthly Racial, caucus ident or racial Identity Caucus, I started to understand what it meant to be white and what I would have to do to become an intentionally anti-racist white person. I've come to realize that privilege and oppression are two sides of the same coin. I've had to come to, come to terms with my relationship to both. There are parts of myself that have needed healing, my own internalized oppression as a woman, as a Jew, as someone who has a hair loss condition, and as a white person raised in our white dominant culture, I have inherited a sense of unearned privilege and internalized racial superiority. So how do we figure out how to relate to this complex dynamic between privilege and oppression? Alan Johnson writes in his book, Privilege, Power, and Difference, we don't realize, quote, we don't realize most of the time that, that the isms, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, racism, affect more than women, LGBTQI people, people with disabilities, and people of color. They affect everyone because it's impossible to live in a world that generates so much injustice and suffering without being touched by it. Everyone has a race a gender, a sexual orientation, a disability status. Whether we like it or not, we all figure in the differences that privilege and oppression are about. That is the bad news, that no matter who you are, the trouble is your trouble. But that's also the good news, because it gives you a reason to do something about it. Johnson suggests that the greatest barrier to change is that dominant groups don't see the trouble of our society as their trouble which means they don't feel obligated to do something about it. This may be because we don't even know the trouble exists. We don't have to see it as our trouble because we see it as a personal rather than a systemic problem or because we're reluctant to give up our privilege or we feel angry and deprived and closed off to the idea that we even have privilege. We might be blinded by prejudice or afraid of what might happen if we acknowledge the reality of privilege and oppression. The bottom line is that systems of privilege make privilege invisible. And for those of us who are part of the white dominant culture in the US, we are, ta we are taught to deny and minimize oppression. We are taught to be colorblind, 
to believe that since President Barack Obama is President of the United States, we must be post-racial. We blame the victim. We call it something else. We assume everyone just prefers things the way they are. We mistake intentions with consequences, attribute it to others, balance the oppression of others with the oppression of our own. Let us be clear, the goal is not to play the oppression Olympics. While it may feel good in an anesthetic kind of way to believe that we are post-racial or all one, the truth is, is that we have all inherited a material reality based on 500 years of shared history. So what if we all started thinking about the trouble of, our, of systemic racism as everyone's responsibility and nobody's fault? What if we told ourselves and each other that it's not about blame and that we don't need to feel guilty about racism, that guilt is actually not helpful? It's easy to fall into the trap of guilt because many of us have been taught to see the world through an individualistic lens, which reduces everything to an individual good or bad intention. And we all want to be good people. But a powerful and liberating alternative lies in the fact that we're all always participating in something larger than ourselves, social systems. To understand our relationship to privilege and oppression, we have to look at what we're participating in and how we participate in it. For example, if a white male professor, and no offense to any white male professors in the room, <laughs> if a white male professor takes the students in his class who look like him more seriously, he isn't necessarily being intentionally sexist or racist, but may be participating in and perpetuating patterns of white and male privilege. He doesn't have to be a bad person to participate in an education system that produces oppressive outcomes. It's simply the way the system is set up to function. I'm sure we could all think of examples of this dynamic from our own lives. The only way to change oppressive outcomes is to change our systems and institutions. If we have a vision of what we want our world to look and feel like, we have to create paths that lead in that direction. We have to do more than just hope, dream, pray, certainly more than simply take the path of least resistance. We must become aware of our biases, which we all have, and we must understand that racism is about more than just prejudice. It's about power and privilege. It's about who gets access to the systems and institutions that distribute the resources necessary for life. So if racism is not about individual actions or beliefs and is about systems and structures, the solution must be systemic. If privilege is rooted in systems like families, schools, places of worship and employment, change isn't simply a matter of changing people. The solution also has to include entire systems whose paths of least resistance shape how we all feel, think, and behave as individuals and how we see ourselves and one another. Thankfully, there is a growing national and local movement in which people of color and white people are gaining an analysis, language system, organizing tools, and a more complete understanding of history, the history of oppression, and the corresponding acts of resistance. Since racism isn't just a trouble of the past, resistance, 
like that of the Underground Railroad, requires all hands on deck, here and now. <clears throat> we must resist the path of, re of least resistance. We must find our way to the path of greatest resistance, the path of dismantling racism. It's a big task, a generational one, which can feel overwhelming at times. But things can change. They have and will continue to change. And none of us are alone. There is room for everyone in this movement. Lucky for us here in Southwest Michigan, ERACE and our national partners at Crossroads are facilitating trainings and team building processes that help people of color, white people, and entire institutions to claim an anti-racist identity. A growing number of people in the sanctuary this morning are engaging in this work. Together, we are learning how to honestly and accurately name our troubles. We are learning new ways of being in relationship with ourselves, each other, and the world around us. Ways of being that are grounded in anti-oppressive, life-giving values. For many of us, our work and our spirituality are no longer two separate aspects of our lives. We are committing to a lifelong journey of reclaiming and engaging our full humanity. I'd like to leave you with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from his commencement address to the 1965 graduating class of Oberlin College. The talk was called Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. He said, through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. We somehow, and in some way, we have got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you will never be what you ought to be if I am not what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. Thank you.